Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good evening. It's Unbelievable. It's hard to believe that we are already here at the first Sunday of Advent. Holy smokes, how did this happen? But yet here we are. Here we are. Time marches on, right? And speaking of time, one of the things that I've noticed over the last few years, um, this phenomenon I've seen through social media, I think social media has been a big part of why this has happened, but I've noticed how, um, you've probably noticed this too, like every once in a while you'll hop online on maybe Facebook or, or Twitter or something and you'll see, you'll, you'll read or discover that Lo and behold, today happens to be like National like Dog Day or like National Sons Day, right? National Daughters Day, National Cheeseburger Day or something, right? Or my personal favorite, National um, Buy Your Priest a Beer Day, okay? It's a good, it's a good holiday, right? Okay, so here's my question, right? Here's my question. Who decides these things, right? Who's deciding these things? And why are so many people, like, so tuned into it, right? Like, you've got people on, you know, the po- this is my son, this is my daughter, here's my dog, here's a cheeseburger, right? Like, everyone's posting pictures on these days. People are so bought into it. Why are people so bought into it and buying their priest a beer? That's what I want to know. Why has no one bought me a beer on National Priest by Peer Priest Day? Anyway. Okay, here's my, as far as who's deciding these things, I have no idea. I have no idea whose job that is. But I, I have a theory, this is my theory, as to why so many people seem to be participating willingly in all of these national secular feast days, because that's really what they are. I think it has to do with our very, um, our deeply human need to experience time as much more than just like this series of successive days. I'll put it this way, like the ancient Greek philosophers, I mean, this is going back millennia, the ancient Greek philosophers, they made a distinction, because that's what they did, right? They made this distinction between two different senses of time, and they used two different words. So, chronos, time, versus kairos, time. Chronos versus kairos. That chronos time is the sort of like tick, tick, tick of the clock. It's It's the quantitative time. It's seconds. It's the minutes, hours, days weeks, months, years. It's, it's measurable time, calendar time. That's chronos, and that's very different than kairos, because kairos, this sense of kairos time, really there's a, there's a timelessness to kairos. You can even put it this way, that, that whereas chronos is quantitative, kairos is qualitative. Kairos time, we've all known kairos time as those moments where like all of a sudden you look down at your watch and you're like, oh my gosh, how, like five hours flew by, right? When you're in the midst of an amazing conversation with friends or with family and it's just like time just flies by. It's like vacation time, you know what I mean? Right, winter break vacation time. How is it already back to school time? That kind of thing, right? There's a timelessness to Kairos. It's, in other words, it's, it's like God's time slipping into our time. There's this human intuition, there's this human intuition, a need, we might even say, for us to elevate Kronos with Kairos, to elevate Kronos with Kairos, to see the passage of time as, as meaningful. And one of the ways that we used to do that, one of the ways that we used to do that, especially as Catholics, as Christians, was by attuning our lives 
to the liturgical life of the church. That the liturgy is what established, it's what elevated Kronos with Kairos. Like the church proposing to us different seasons, different feasts, memorials. Of course, we still have those things, but it, it's, it doesn't hold sway over our life like it used to once upon a time in Christendom, right? Think of the seasons of fasting, the seasons of feasting. Some of us maybe in this church are old enough to remember ember days, right? Certain days of fasting, these, or, or octave days where we celebrated lengthy octaves, one long solemnity. I mean, we still have that, but it was really felt in the culture. It was really felt in our blood. Like it affected how people, it affected how people ate, what they ate, when they worked, how they spent their money, where they spent their money, how they dressed, what they did in the evenings, what they did early in the morning, you know, early morning masses, late night vigils, processions, pilgrimages, all of these things were part of Kairos time, the, litur- the church's liturgical calendar forming, informing our Kronos with Kairos. And over the long course of the church's centuries, right, Holy Mother Church, because she is our mother, she's our Holy Mother, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, under, under the direction of the magisterium, the saints, the mystics, the doctors of the church, the bishops, the church has discerned this method of drawing the faithful deeper and deeper into the mystery of the word made flesh, right? Because that's, Jesus is the center point of the universe. He's the center point of history. His coming amongst us was so, whatever the opposite of cataclysmic is, it was so decisive, so definitive, so significant that his coming split time in two. Right? If Jesus is who he said he was, if he is who we believe he is, then he's the center point of everything. And the church, by offering us this liturgical calendar, invited us to, gave, gave us a means to orbit around the mystery of Christ. His incarnation, his life, his mysteries, his passion, his death, his resurrection. And we do it over and over and over again. Right? Just like this earth orbits the sun in this yearly cycle, The church orbits the mystery of the word made flesh over and over again so that we can drill down deeper into this mystery. Or conversely, for that mystery to drill itself down deeper into us. Here's here's the point. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Like, living liturgically, it matters. It really matters. It's not an ancillary part of our walk with the Lord. It's not an ancillary part of discipleship. It really matters. Like, if you want to be a faithful son or daughter of the church, you need, to be, you need to allow yourself to be led by Holy Mother Church, who proposes this way of living for us, for this kairos to be the very thing that elevates chronos. Which brings me to what I want to really get to tonight, I think a very controversial topic. Um, there have only been a few homilies in my life as a priest where I'm, I've been a little bit nervous to preach. This is one of them. Buckle up. Here we go. You ready? Here's the proposal. Here's what I want to pitch. If you've got a pitchfork or a rock, just set it down. Don't chuck anything at me. Ready? Here's the proposal. I want us to try and let Advent be Advent and to let Christmas be Christmas. Okay, so we're good so far. Okay, no one's hurling any rocks. Okay, we're good. All right. This is what I mean. Here's what I'm trying to get into. I, th- I think, it's my estimation, I honestly think that like 99 point whatever percent of good Catholics, you, us, right, faithful Catholics, faithful Christians, people that I look to and admire, like most Catholics, I think, celebrate Advent as just early Christmas. 
And then, you know, Christmas comes around on December 25th, and the tree comes down shortly thereafter. It's out to the curb. The decorations get packed up, and we get our houses back in order, ready for the new year. We really want to let Advent be Advent and Christmas be Christmas. And, and as your priest, as your spiritual father, as someone who only wants good for you, like, I just want to suggest, I just want to propose tonight, as we begin this Advent journey this year, that you and your family at least attempt to try and approach Advent differently. I mean, these old adages are adages for a reason, and they're true. Things like, you know, if you do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, you're kind of crazy, right? You can't do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. How many of us have approached these weeks of Advent the same way every single year with hope and expectancy and longing and looking really for something new at Christmas and then Christmas comes along, December 26th comes and it's just back to life as it was. Like what if it could be different? What if it could be different? So that's the invitation. I want us to maybe think about approaching Advent differently and, and, and maybe if you're not even ready to approach it differently this year, I would just ask you to pay attention to your heart throughout this Advent and think maybe could we do this different next year? Advent 2024. So let's, let me first try and ground, let's ground ourselves in church teaching. What our mother, the church, is teaching us about what Advent is. Not what we want it to be, not how our culture has hijacked it. That doesn't matter. If we want to be faithful disciples, what does the church teach about Advent? Look to the catechism, paragraph 524. It teaches us what these Kairos days of Advent are supposed to be. Paragraph 524 of the catechism reads this, and I quote, When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the precursor, that's John the Baptist, by celebrating the precursor's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire that he must increase but I must decrease. Okay, let me distill that. Let me break that down. A few things about this. Notice first it's this. We are not, we are not temporarily suspending our belief that Christ has already come, right? That's not what we're doing in these days. It's not as though like we just pretend that he hasn't shown up and we're just like, man, boy, oh boy, it'll be so great when Jesus comes, you know? And Christmas comes, we're like, he's here! You know, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. The church says what we are entering into what the Catechism describes is the ancient expectancy of the Messiah. We enter into the longing of Israel for the Messiah to come in the first place. That's what we're entering into. And by that, entering into that longing, what we're doing is we're kindling in our own hearts a longing for his second coming. If I could break it down even further, like, Advent is about longing. It's about entering into this longing, entering into the ache, the ache of Advent, feeling it in our bones, feeling it in our hearts, entering into the ache. But for for what? For the fulfillment of my heart's desire for, for someone to come and rescue me. Like, we just sang that song at the beginning of Mass. We'll sing it all throughout Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. Captive Israel. Now look, I I very much doubt, I could be wrong, but I very much doubt any of us have ever been hostages. 
If you have, raise your hand. I'd like to hear your story. Okay, that's what I thought. Very few of us have ever probably been hostages. We've, like, none of us have ever sat in the, in the place of, of desperation. Just put yourself in that place, because that's what we're singing. Ransom captive Israel. Like, if you were a captive, like, how much your whole mind, your whole being would be attuned to waiting, hoping, longing for rescue. Every single day, every moment of your day would be, is this going to be the day? Is this going to be the moment where someone breaks into my situation to pull me forth out of this into freedom? If we are not in touch, if we are not in touch with our need for rescue, if we're not in touch with our need for someone to break into our world, then like Christmas is going to come and we're not going to, we're not even going to experience what we're meant to experience. This is my point. We're meant to enter into this ache for someone to come and set things right. For someone to come and set this world right. For someone to come and set me right. I'm broken. All is not well with me. All is not well with you. As St. Paul cries out, who will save me from this body of death? Or that first reading we have, this beautiful reading from Isaiah, right? The first words. Why do you let us wander, O Lord, from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? You hear, like, Isaiah is, he's letting out this cry that St. Paul says later on, like, Father, why do you allow me to mess my life up so much? Father, why have you allowed me to wander from you? Why have you allowed me to make such a mess of things? In the freedom you've given me, you've allowed me to wander from you, for my heart to become hardened. Like we've turned our hearts to a million different idols looking for satisfaction in this world. We've given our hearts to a million things that are not worthy of our hearts. And thereby in that process, we've become enslaved. That's what idolatry is. That's, that's our predicament. And so Isaiah cries out from this place of desperation, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the mountains quaking before you, that you would tear open the heavens, that you would come down and fix this. Or even like the entrance antiphon for this Mass, the first Sunday of Advent, right? The entrance antiphon is, To you I lift up my soul, O my God. To you I lift up my soul, because I've lifted up my soul, I've given my heart to many other things who are not you. Like our hearts... Many of our hearts in the contemporary church, in our church, I'll, I'll just speak from my own heart, they don't sound like Isaiah. They don't sound like that. We don't sound that desperate. Rend the heavens and come down. Quake the mountains before you. I don't sound that desperate. I don't think we sound that desperate, that longing, that hungry, that achy, that desirous for rescue. I think most of us, most of the time, are just thinking, you know, we're mostly fine. And God, just sprinkle a little grace in my life to make my life a little bit better. That'd be great. Like, I think the way that the culture has conditioned us to move through Advent is that we, we just steadily gorge ourselves on Christmas appetizers all throughout these weeks. And then when we actually get to the feast, when the feast is ready on December 25th, we're already full I mean, we've all, I mean, I don't know if we've all been there. I know I've been there. Dinner parties, you know, they, all the appetizers are out, and you're just, like, eating food like it's your last meal, the last food on the planet, gorging your, all the chip dip and the queso, and then you're like, 
I'm, I'm full. And we haven't even sat down to eat. And like, don't get me wrong though, like the, like the, the corn dip and the queso, like the reason why we eat it is it tastes good. Like it's not a condemnation. But for weeks, what we do is we, we nestle into all of the Christmas nostalgia because, well, I mean, everyone's doing it and because it feels good. And when we do that, what, we've, what we end up doing is we exchange the mind-blowing mystery of the incarnation really for therapeutic Christianity, for feel-good Christianity. This just feels good. And what we've done is we, we rob ourselves. That's the thing. We rob ourselves of, the, of feeling the ache, of feeling the longing, of being in touch with our hearts that we're meant to feel in these days so that when we sing joy to the world, we know what we're singing about. The Lord has come. So what do I propose? I'm going to propose a few different things. And again, no hurling rocks at me. At the 8 o'clock Mass this morning, after I sat down from the homily, Deacon Rich leaned over. He goes, I will protect you after Mass. I'm like, I very much doubt that. <laughs> it was a very kind offer, though. Oh, he's my bodyguard. Okay. Here's, here's what I'm going to propose. In a word, fasting. Fasting. From three things in particular. And I propose these in order of, I think, what's easiest to hardest. Okay? So here's the first thing. The traditional form of fasting here from f- certain foods and drinks. Let's just put it that way. Let's just consider the possibility that we might simplify what we're eating and what we're drinking. And for those of you who are 21 and older, maybe let's think about simplifying what we're drinking. Right? I know here in Cleveland, so many of us love the seasonal beers, the great like, Christmas ale, the Festivus, those, those seasonal beers. Consider holding off on that, or the, the fancy cocktails. Consider holding off on that until Christmas. It's to simplify, to fast, to long. Consider that. That's the first one. That's the easiest one. Here's the next one. This is a big jump. Let's consider fasting, perhaps, from certain decorations. I know. This seems crazy. This seems crazy. What could get crazier than this, you ask? I know. I'll get there. And I say this with no judgment, no condemnation for anybody who's already decked the halls. I'm thinking of my own mom and dad. Their house is already decorated. So mom and dad, if you're listening, okay. No condemnation. But hear me out. The church has, in our tradition, a, a, tra- a tradition of visual fasting. Think about how leading up to Holy Week, we veil the statues, we veil the images. Why? To prepare our full bodily senses for the feast of the, of the resurrection. So just imagine this as maybe another way to do this. If not this year, maybe next year. That instead of bringing everything out all at once, maybe consider bringing things out slowly in stages intentionally, that's the thing, with intentionality, maybe even saving some of the biggest things for last. Like, I know one, a few families, actually, who fully embrace this, that Christmas Eve, they've, they've already got their tree up. It's not decorated, but Christmas Eve, they order pizza, all the kids come together, and all the kids that night put all the lights, ornaments, and they decorate the tree that night so that in the morning, it is just transformed and glorious. I know that sounds crazy, but consider it. Here's the last one. Here's the last one. Let us consider fasting from Christmas music. I know, I just saw like a shift. I just felt you all lean back. Like, lean back in. Stay with me. Stay with me. I know, this is blasphemous, but I'm going to say it anyway. I know, here's the thing. I know we can't escape it. You go into any department store, everywhere you go, it's in your house, it's in your car. 
it's on the radio, but back to that idea, like, out in the world, you can't control it, but yes, in your house, in your car, in your world, in your AirPods, you're in control of that. You're in control of that. So consider this, despite jumping ahead to all of the Christmas classics, all the Christmas favorites, listening to those up through and including Christmas, consider, let me just put it this way, like we've known for centuries, for millennia, the effect of music on the soul. Like there's a reason why we love this stuff. There's a reason why we love these hymns, because of what they do in our hearts. The nostalgia, the beauty, all of it, I get it. But what if, like, if we're meant to stir up the ache, what if you made your own playlist or something or listened to particular CDs or albums that, like, that really tap into your heart and your story and are, are, have throughout your life, this is the music that has stirred the ache, the longing in you. Like, what is that music? It's different for all of us. If, you, if you're a Spotify person, I, I, I built a, a Spotify playlist called The Ache of Advent. If you want to search for it, you can listen to it. But it's, it's all these songs and different hymns, a lot of them Advent hymns, that have moved me, that stir my ache and longing. So I'll end with this. I'll end with this. That the church, again, as our mother, as our mother, she's our teacher. She knows what she's doing. She knows what she's proposing. She only, she only wants good for us. She wants us to feast well. You know, all of the church's feasting seasons are longer than the fasting seasons. That's the church's way of saying, I want you to feast well. She wants us to mark our days and these seasons well for our chronos to be elevated by kairos. She wants us to feast well. But in order to feast well, you have to fast well. That's the thing. In order to feast well, you have to fast well first. So may we, as we begin this Advent season, enter into the ache, enter into the longing, so that we really know what we're singing when we say joy to the world on Christmas. Amen.